Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 talking uh, just in this weird little curtain booth um, about the great American disaster yes. on the Fulham Road and you were saying back in the 70s you and the band were living on Seymour Place just yes. off the Fulham Road and of course the American disaster was a precursor of the phenomenon yeah, of the posh burger joint, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Sort of avant la lettre. It was too posh for my taste, you know. I liked White Castle. I like Wimpy's, you know. And, and White Castle in yeah. the States and Wimpy's. Yeah. Wimpy's sadly gone. Oh. The Wimpy constructed as a beef burger yes. rather than a hamburger. Oh, yes, it was right. a beef burger. A beef burger. Okay. I don't know whether that was a sort of English resonance. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel an affinity with here at all when you were coming in the 70s? Did in you? the 70s, a super, I liked it super much, yeah. And, uh, it was actually the Stooge guys wanted the burger and they'd go to the disaster, but I always went to Smalls, which yeah. was right there on the... Yeah, there were so many things you could do, you know. There was a, there was a place called Baghdad House, a uh, block up the street, and you could go get Middle Eastern food, but she'd give you hash with it, you know. Excellent. She'd give you hash, she's, yeah, yeah. She was an old babe, and uh, then I think she hooked up with the guitar player, and you know. And I would take walks, and once, I, I walked up the Fulham Road far enough, and there was this roundabout, and I thought, holy shit, this is the roundabout where Catherine Deneuve is going mad in repulsion. In Polanski's you know, repulsion, yeah, yeah. yeah. I recognize that. And uh, I used to hang out outside the Albert Hall. I'd walk all the way up through Ken Road up to Albert Hall. And at that time, Albert's statue had no guilt on it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was just, like a black bit of yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was so just well. kind of dumpy, you know, and, and I'd have a coffee and a serpentine and... There were just a lot of things you could do. I mean, granted, you're in a very nice part of town there, you know, but... Um, but it felt, the city felt slower. It was yeah, emptier. It was way, kind of hollowed out. Way it? slower, and you'd go to the King's Road, and at that, this was 1972, and a lot of, everybody was trying to be who could be the skinniest. Right, everybody's <laughs> trying to like everybody's anorexic, and uh, and they're all the men are parading around in used Cub Scout uniforms from the USA, right? Old you know, scout shirts. Yeah, and yeah, out. really, really interesting, and and. Uh, Okay, well, we'll time, do our best. At that time, there was the shop was Let It Rock there mm -hmm. at World's End. And then around the corner, if you had more money and you were like sort of one of these, I'm a rock person, but I want to get rich, you would go to Granny Takes a Trip yeah. and buy uh, 
platform snakeskin boots. You and know. the Victoriana was at Granny Takes a Trip, wasn't it? The, the kind the of Vic old Victorian sort of styles. Yes, that's and right. Jackets with frogging. The, and yeah, it was all the, you know. Do you, looking back now, I mean, you, can Speaker's you, Corner. Speaker's Corner. I went, it existed, and it'd be a box smaller than this, yeah. and there'd be a, a loony. You know, yeah. somebody make it. I loved it. Well, I mean, the guy wow. we always went to see was a Kenyan guy who who worked in the tea plantations, and this is off the back of the Mau Mau revolt against British right, imperialism. Okay. And he'd say, "The thing I do is when I've picked tea all day. When I used to pick tea all day, I'd finish and have the big basket of tea. Is I'd piss in it." <laughs> so all you English are drinking my piss, and he'd stand up on his box, uh, laying this down. My dad loved that. He'd just he'd go to see the Kenyan every week wow, to hear about cool, it. Cool. <laughs> I, I haven't been for years. I don't no, know if there's anybody. I, I don't know if it's still. I don't think uh, it's there. But is you know, it still there? Well, you know, do you not think that the the characteristic of the modern age is there, mm. there's no taboo anymore? Yeah, you can say whatever you want, but no one's listening. Nobody's. Yeah, there's too many. Yeah, too much competition. But that little bit, since we've got onto it, and we were talking before about the, the the burger joint and the kind of you know the Great American Disaster itself, which had pictures of the Wall Street crash and the the Hindenburg going up in flames, and you know that was kind of punk, wasn't it? That was that was an element of kind of nihilism, even in that late hippie era that was coming out. Maybe if it was, it wasn't punk, maybe, but it was some other sorts of people, marketing people, playing with those ideas, mm. I would say, seeing that these things are happening mm. and thinking, well, that might go, mm. you know? But, yeah. but looking back on it now, and, we, um, and, it, and it's a considerable look back, yeah. we're talking about half a century. Oh, yeah, I know. Do you see these countercultural movements as being part of the same thing, or do you still see them as radically different? I mean, you came up through it all, you came up through the late 60s and then into the 70s. Do you mean that, it, it, is it different now, or do you mean that was each movement different? Was well, at the time when we were young, we thought, mm. you know, death to hippies, and we thought, you yeah, know, yeah, we had yeah. nothing to do with these people who are into reggae or ska or anything. We're, we're this, we're not that. But with the benefit of hindsight, do they not all look countercultural in that way? Yeah, even the hippies, in a way, were counterculture, but the, only to the extent that they, it was okay to, uh, as long as, it was the pill, mm. birth control pill, mm. changed a lot of things. I remember when everybody started popping those, and basically in the, in the U.S., I lived in a college town, and everybody wanted to fuck everybody else. Everybody, just for practice, you know, <laughs> or, or for, well, what's it like? with somebody like that I don't know <laughs> you know and, so yeah. it was he's cute whatever you know it was like taking the restraints off taking yes. the governor off yes. of everything and it was a technical thing yes well. but it didn't it didn't stop the there was this still this great will to organize and prosper that exists in the US so you had as uh, the who mentioned meet the new boss same as the old boss you had the Rolling Stone magazine rock and roll gloves goes to college. I mean, I feel, you know, I, I'm a little embarrassed that I can probably read better than Elvis could, mm. you know. Uh, Why embarrassed? Well, because I always feel like the best rock was made by guys like, like Link Ray, you know, a real, not that he was a dummy either, but by people who 
became more from the bottom rungs. Okay, well, like the philosopher uh, Schelling says, we should distinguish between naive artists yeah. and sophisticated artists. There you go. And and the naive artist just you know opens his mouth or she picks up a guitar and she just does her thing. Yeah, and but she doesn't. It's unmediated by thought. And the sophisticated artist is starting to think about the process. Is starting to be metacritical in that way. And are you worried right. you've become? Too metacritical? Uh, I don't like it when it gets too metacritical. No, I get <laughs> it. I don't like it from other artists when they get. But some metacritical shit is pretty damn good sometimes too. Right. So it's nice if you could if you can mix the two okay, a little which, bit. Okay. Which again, you know, without wanting to sort of grease your ankles. No. It's what <laughs> it's what's happening on free. That's kind of what I'm up to. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're up to both being metacritical and presenting, and I think this is the key for me to your art, yeah. emotive. It's highly emotive. And we were just talking before, and I was starting to cry yeah. about a couple of the tracks on the new album because they are very moving, aren't they? That You seem to have reached something. You know, I was a little kid in the... I was at a teenage time in the 60s, when there was some very wonderful deep music being made, mostly by the by the black artists in America, uh, Laurent, who Thomas, who's who's African American and comes from Houston, uh, so he had some things in his repertoire that had that feeling for me of the very uh, a really good sad soul ballad or a really kind of semi-Latin band groove, like, uh, for instance, Stevie Wonder, Fingertips Part 1 mm, and 2. Mm. That's a Latin groove. The band's going... That's not, that's not American. There's a guy, but being metacritical about it, there's a guy named uh, Henry Louis Gates mm -hmm. who the writes... signifying monkey. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And he writes on... Uh, on the currents, cross currents between South American and Caribbean, African, uh, the African diaspora and the and the American, and there was a lot of a whole lot of uh, communication that went on that Whitey didn't know about, you know. Well, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been teaching Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man mm, the yeah. last couple of weeks, and you get it yeah. in that, you know, he's writing yeah. in the late '30s, at, you know, off the back of the Harlem Renaissance, and he's riffing off the African-Caribbean influence yeah, of yeah. Garvey as well, and you yeah. can see it yeah. in that. What's that culture, that African-American culture, something you were much exposed to as a kid? Well, a lot through the, through the top 40 radio, because mm. their stuff was the good stuff. Mm. Joe Tex, mm. Booker T and the MGs, uh, right up through the shy lights and all that stuff. I couldn't play that way myself, but I tried to put some of the what I thought was the logic behind it into the original music I started doing with the Stooges. But you weren't super saturated in the sense the crowd you were hanging around with. In no, teens, no, right? no. I was a, a little white kid living in a trailer park with uh, there wouldn't there, there was one family there, and they were doing what's called passing. Okay. Yes, passing, and yeah. they were key for me. They were the bishops and. Uh, Jim Bishop, they, they were about 12 trailers up the line on, on our row. And uh, 
Jim Bishop was from Tennessee or somewhere, and uh, looking at him now, he's probably what they called a quadroon. Mm -hmm. And his wife was probably Cherokee, something like that, a beautiful woman. And they had a son who had a big, strong boy, and he could play something called Bulldog on the guitar. It was uh, something like a Dwayne Eddy, twangy guitar, made a huge impression on me. And his sister, Diane, had a, she had a thing for me a little bit. I didn't know it exactly, but she kept walking by my trailer in these little two-piece outfits. And she was a certain age. And my parents, my dad would get real nervous. and <laughs> say, Jim, just whatever you do, don't do anything that's going to ruin your life. You know, that's, he so, hadn't heard of the pill yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, I, the pill, this was the 50s. So the pill had it come in. I was only about 12. I didn't know how to ruin my life yet. You know? But you were so, keen on finding yeah. out. So there was, there, there was a little bit of that. There were, there were the, Jim used to do things like when they wanted uh, chicken dinner, he would buy live chickens and gas them on the exhaust pipe of his car. That's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but that way you have the fresh chickens. You know, right? <laughs> so we had these other people. I, I was also exposed to Southern culture. This, these were really nice boys. Uh, Junior and Grady Sams. And their dad was, was also named Grady. And Grady Sams was a guy. He had a bald head and a strong kind of slim body. He was a construction itinerant construction worker. He had a little tiny trailer. It was a two boys, him and a spider monkey in a cage, right? Because, well, these are Southern people. Yeah, you boys want a monkey? I'll get you a monkey, you know? And Grady, Grady would come home after, after uh, work, and he'd walk into the trailer, and I'd be there playing with his kids, right? And I would like use their record player to listen to zombies records. Mm. You know, the new English records were starting to come out. And he'd pop open a little 12 pack tin of uh, bear aspirin and crack a Schlitz, swallow the whole tin of aspirin, down goes the Schlitz. What was the aspirin? Well, well because, do? because he's, you know, he's a construction worker, it hurts. He's getting older, it hurts. It's a real southern. Thing, you know, and there's a mom in there anymore, and uh, and he was sweet as pie, and he'd then he'd he'd finish that beer, and then crack another one. And while he drank the second one, he'd make a big tin of um, bacon soda biscuits, because that's what you eat in the South, right? You know, and he gave his kids um, little 22 caliber air rifles, because guns is a big deal, you know, and I would. I went out with him one day, and I picked up his air rifle, and I aimed it at a little sparrow, and I shot it. That's the only thing I've ever killed. Yeah, the only thing. Yeah, I never picked up a gun again because I felt terrible. I thought, I'm not going to hit it, right? But I hit it. You I know? killed it. Yeah. So, so there was a little bit of that. And you, you know? were essentially you know, a beneficiary, as, as was American culture in general, of this great exodus from the South to the Northern cities, yes. both by African-Americans and by white Americans, yeah, poor yeah. white Americans seeking work in yeah, the North, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, you know, later I met a, a metacritical type person, a very bright 
guy who hung around the U of M campus named Michael Earlwine, and he was, uh, he knew his music backwards and forwards, and it was he who had a fine collection of Chicago blues, mm. and also Mississippi blues, and he started a blues band. Mm. And I, he was about seven years older. He, he did well later with, he founded something called The Guide to All Music, which was the original compendium. Yeah, you remember mm. that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and his brother wrote all the reviews. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was off the back of Nat Hentoff's Encyclopedia of there Jazz you, There as you well, go, wasn't yeah. It? yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. But on, you know, to come to the new album, because in a sense we're, we're here for that, and I, right. I think people want to hear you say something about all it. Right. Am I right in thinking in, in tracks like Dirty Sanchez, mm. we're hearing this mythopoeic landscape kind of coming up, this kind of American... Folklore. You're you're hearing that, and very much courtesy of Laron Thomas. Mm. The way that track worked, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the track or not. I don't know how to bore you to tears, but it's a it's a groovy little track with a very very well timed bass and a kind of a New Orleans drum mm. on it, mm. played by French musicians, which makes sense because uh, New Orleans was a French culture originally, and he sent it to me. I was corresponding with this musician because I just liked him and liked his stuff. And uh, he's somebody who was coming from a, a life of being a sideman for very, very fine uh, rhythm and blues and hip-hop artists, and he wanted to be himself, and he was trying some hip-hop, he was trying all sorts of stuff, and so he sent me this track. I suspect he thought I might like it and sing it, but he didn't tell me that. He mm. just sent it, and he demos this. It's a rant that starts out. Look, if I say it's my, if I say it's my fault for your success by default, can you lighten up on me? Like, okay, two people are having a little go. And then it spirals, mm. and we've got slavery, pornography, sexual frustration, blah, you know, and, until it's, and I listened to it, he sent it to me, there was no horn on it. And I thought, this is groovy, and I would listen to it and start laughing, because it was also just kind of funny, and so I thought, this guy wants a jazz career, that's a very straight-laced world. Mm. So yeah, he can't sing this and get mm. away with it. Mm. But uh, he had told me he was sick of, he didn't want to play elevator music the rest of his life. There's a tension there in yes. those words, though, isn't there? there between yeah. the metacritical and the naive. There you I mean, go. I mean, the emotion no. is uh, a sense of anger, a sense of having been used and betrayed. There is something But, but the there. lyrical line is actually quite objective about this yes, phenomenon. Yes, he, he's thought about yeah. this. It's, it's more thoughtful than I would dare to be as a lyricist. So, so oh, I wrote steady him... Steady on. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not. I, I wrote him back and said, look, you could get away with this maybe if you put some horn on it. Your claim to fame is you're a great horn player. So he thought about this, and he came up with this sophisticated take on Tijuana Brass. Yeah, basically. I was going yeah. to say, "Stranger on the Shore." Yeah, right? there you go, Acker Bilk, Acker Bilk, right? 
and but it's but it's beautifully done. He triple tracked himself with these very strange dissonances, and then I thought, wow, this is a great piece of music. I should never sing this. No, no, <laughs> no. No, well, I thought I was a little bit, you know, like I've been beat over the head for so long for through all my trashier periods that after a while, you know. I want a bottle of wine and <laughs> a good dinner. It'll leave me alone. But there's this other person going, sing that fucking song, you know. So, yeah. so I sang the song and I was happy I did. But that's the kind of dialectic you've been in for the past few years, where yeah. you've been doing, as it were, a hard-driving, you know, kind of rock and roll album and then stepping back and then looking at other projects and yes this is going back and forth a lot and actually you've been doing that your whole career well it's true in a way because you know the the stooges original stooges album a lot of people picked up on it as a prototype for certain things that became a a simple approach that could help punk bands but just before, shortly before that album, I was playing vacuum cleaner with the band and uh, inventing instruments in junkyards and doing strange uh, performance presentations. The drummer, I had him at my suggestion and he agreed, his bass drums were 55 gallon oil tanks that you find, you know, outside your house. You know, what oil comes in. Yeah, yeah. And I used those with wooden beaters and then timbales instead of tom-toms. Did that give a steel drum sound, the oil it cans? It did. It yeah. gave a very, very hard That's percussive bass sound. steel drum. Yeah. yeah. And by the, by the time we made the first album, the guys all wanted to be more normal. Yeah. You know, and so they got more normal, and that was okay. But even on the first record, we had a... We had a 10-minute Hindu chant that nobody pays, pays any attention to because it's not critically convenient to comment on it, but it's, but it's a beautiful, uh, uh, like, Om Shri Ram Ja Ram Ja Ja Ram over and over and over. And, uh, John Cale plays viola beautifully on that. It's a really nice piece of music. Yeah, even the, the most uh, flagrant and in-your-face Stooges material still has a mantric quality There's to some, it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know, yeah. Turgenev says, what's the difference between a white void and a black void when it comes to enlightenment? You know, what is the difference between a what? A white void and a black void. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, there you go. So do the two meet up in a way, the nihilism of punk yeah. and the kind of constructive nihilism of the mystical yeah. insight? Ron Ashton was probably unknowing the the he would listen to the amplifier to the to the Another, feedback yeah he just listened to what the the noise it made and the guitar made of its own free will while he was only semi controlling it cuz that's all he could do but he noticed that there were some very enjoyable things here and it sounded almost like Ravi Shankar, you know? It was your instant Ravi, in yeah, a way. Kind of and electro sitar yeah, or kind of Yeah, theme. whereas, uh, you know, someone like a Ted Nugent wants to control that instrument. God yeah. damn it! Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a sort of accidental virtuosic yes, approach. Yes, quite, quite. 
on that when you hear I Want to Be Your Dog, if you ever yeah. listen to it again for the first Stooges album, if you listen for this, you'll hear that it's played, it's an open G, open F sharp, and but half open, and then the full open E at the bottom. So you, because of the compression in the studio, there are two different volumes going on with every riff, so you'll hear and because of that change of volume, it's not too noticeable, but it gives the song gives the song a kind of a, a like as if you were at sea. It's, uh, it's it, well, actually, you know what it reminds me of is the uh, slow movement, the the largo movement of Beethoven six, uh, Beethoven's fourth, where you get that. You know that bit? I always yeah? decide yeah. decided when Ron got older, I, I'm going to make you Beethoven. So we're getting <laughs> <laughs> helping me out because he did a couple of very bedrock mm. riffs. Uh, Was that one of the tracks that you remastered in the early 2000s? Because you did some remastering. No, I no. did. Uh, they, I think the company, when they put it out on CD, the, one of the tragedies of the Shopped early the, Stooges yeah. was the professionals at the record companies, would, we didn't know what mastering was. And so they'd get this thing, and they just think, squash it, turn yeah. it down, turn it down. This is, the, the needles are wrong, this is not professional. So all our records on vinyl originally were too very quiet and weedy sounding. And then our salvation was the CD coming in. I, I, it's an ugly little format, <laughs> you know. But the the people who were listening at the companies to put ourselves on CD were younger, mm. and they knew, hey, this should sound. And suddenly, you know, down in the streets, right in your face, Raw Power was the one mm. I redid. Look cynically, you're, I'm living in America. It's the early '90s. I'm surrounded by new metal guys with like beer bellies and pumped up muscles at the same time, which annoys me, yeah, right? It's, it's not okay. right. And, <laughs> and they've all, they're all covered in tattoos and they've learned to curse. Woo! And, and one band is fucking heavier than the other, you know, but when then the shit what they're playing, but they listen to my band and it's this little weedy thing. So I said, I'm gonna, I'm going to make the loudest record in America, <laughs> basically. I'm going to make it so loud that, you know, the Rollins band will quiver in fear. <laughs> you know? And that's okay, Henry. I could say that. He's a nice boy. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there was one day, the day I met Henry Rollins, he, uh, he was quite younger than he is now, and it was like, I felt just like the scene in RoboCop when RoboCop suddenly has to meet <laughs> the the giant machine, the the super total machine cop that dwarfs him. And you know, I, I was invited to have coffee with him in New York, and we were going to discuss something. And I come around the corner. I already walk funny. I weigh 127 pounds, <laughs> you know. And at the other end of the block. Hench, Goliath, yeah. Yeah. right? Goliath. 
covered in tattoos. And I thought, okay, I get it. You're, you're here to uh, make me obsolete, you know. And it didn't work out that way. We get on great, but, uh, but people have a go. So I, made it, I remixed that to be as loud as fucking possible. It's a little, it's a little ragged. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, but they listened then. They went, oh, that's pretty loud. <laughs> but free, a very different soundscape again. Yeah, very, and, very and how different. much were you in, in, in on the, the production? Uh, well, very much with the... The uh, very much in choosing the general idea and the emotive qualities of mm. the tracks, but as far as I stayed way off from saying anything like, "Do you think the bass is a little loud?" or yeah. you know any of that. I stayed away from. The, but I was involved once it was mastered. Um, I listened closely, and it was a good mastering guy in France. Mm. who understood the thing that helped a lot. The way that worked was uh, Laurent, he does hip hop, he does experimental jazz, and then he wrote this stuff for me. One of the tracks, Sonali, which is a, it's a ballad, and it has some emotion. Uh, he didn't really like it. It was something that someone else in the group had written, and he grudgingly did a lyric for, but I liked it. And then once he heard me sing it, he could hear that I was so into it. It seems to speak to me of a lot of the problems that the southern part of America is facing at the moment. And you in Miami yeah. are in the kind of cockpit of that, aren't you? Well, you've, got, yeah. you've got two major related disasters slowly happening. Uh, the, cli- <laughs> the climate emergency and rising sea levels. People yeah, say you're part I, I of the I live on the water, be- dude. Exactly. <laughs> And the other is is migration and yeah, the wall. Yeah. And I felt that running through that track a lot. I wonder if it spoke to you at that well, level. Well, it, it did. And the the, the I, this is the only track where I asked him. Usually, I just listen and try to figure out what is the lyricist trying to say. But I asked him about her, and mm. he said, "Well, she's a Sri Lankan from Mississippi, Southern Texas area, first generation, but." speaks like an American and very interested in being, having that real American life and being mm. accepted. And of course, in he, he, this was someone he liked very, very much and they had a, a relationship. But Laurent is a musician who still hasn't gotten where he needs, uh, he hasn't uh, fulfilled his talents and skills enough in his career yet. Someone who's not quite themselves yet can't really be depended on to, uh, you know, to hold up their end in something like that. So the song is him kind of saying, that's why the stay in your lane, which that one kills me. You know, that that line alone just sums up so much. You got stay in your lane according to your speech, stay in the, your lane according to your... Uh, your job description, your uh, your ambitions, whether you're domestic, familial or not, a lot of things. I, w- I went from stay in your lane to freeway to what an oxymoron freeway is when you're driving on, in American freeways. No, it's so You've got to stay in your lane. Yeah, you've got to because everybody's... 
and they're huge, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But that's the biggest meta idea behind free, isn't it? And somewhere, I think it might have been in an interview with the NME, you were saying it was about the emotion of freedom, not the fact of autonomy. That what you seek is that sense of, of internal liberty, a kind of existential liberty in yes, that way. And yeah? yeah, and sometimes I'll cheat it like a convertible can help. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually, when I first moved to Miami, it was a common sight. You'd see little old men with white hair with a big smile driving a vintage convertible around because, because they'd worked themselves almost to death in the north. And now, well, now I'm going to do something I want to do before I pass out and drop dead, you know. But um, that can help a little bit. It can, it can start the feeling of being free. Not, not wearing shoes is nice, not wearing clothes, but ultimately you want more than that. And, uh, but but you know, the album sort of suggests that maybe there isn't more than that. And I, and I wondered, you know, the, <laughs> the Stoics say, you know, the, the ancient Stoics mm -hmm. say freedom is that sense you get when the action that is necessitated for you is what you happen to want to do. You know, yes, it's a there you go. There has to be, because you can't know, you have to obey the structures or yeah. you will be struck down badly. So you have to try to find some nice structures that suit you, yes. But emotionally, over the whole span of your life, that's kind of what happened to you time and again. You, you kind of went for broken liberation and, and the world fucked you in various ways. Does no. it feel like that now? Or do you look back and think, Actually, it's been okay. Well, it's been, it turned out, you know, when I, when I was first fronting the Stooges and writing that, those three records, my mentality was, uh, I'm confident that if I think something we do is good, there's gonna be other people who are gonna like it. I didn't realize it was how hard it was gonna be to reach any significant number of them. I got some encouraging signs right off, usually from misfits, stoners, and metacritical people always liked mm. us. Yeah, yeah, they were like, whoa, how interesting, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Shades of Dada. Uh, yeah, see, there you go, Shades of Dada, yeah. And then it became apparent there were problems with the gatekeepers, still are, and then there are big problems because it's an industrial art, what yeah. I'm practicing. Less now, a little less now, it's now slightly more of a tech, it's born by tech a little more, and that makes it a little easier to slide your ideas in. But it's still, I never could have made a record like this except that I could pay for it. Yeah. I didn't yeah. have to ask some dick. Right, so, so you know, so, so I paid for it. If if some dick didn't want to put it out, I would have put it out myself. The artist that it, that it reminded me of in, in uh, looking at free as a project and looking at it in relation mm. to your work, I, I interviewed David Lynch two or three years ago, just well. maybe four or five years ago, after he'd made Inland Empire, mm. and he made that in the same way that you've made same free. Thing. It's the same thing. He'd cut outside the mainstream. He'd drawn on his own resources. He'd mm. set it up and. And he too has that idea of acting as a kind of artistic impresario, that he's almost playing on the, the talents he can gather into a, a project as if it's sure. some sort of 
meta moog synthesizer in that way and he's probably aware that the stuff he does himself that way are not going to be the big money spinners in his life no. but if you can do it and pay for it it's worth it and then you know you can advertise something mm. whatever right you, know? you say the cd crappy little format yeah and, and you, we, we go back to vinyl which in this neck of the woods is now fetishized as if it were made out of ancient tweed or something stroke it it kind of goes with musty old used furniture right, but we it? never saw that one coming and we're like in the cockpit of that i know that cock being the operative word I know. Yeah, and and I just wondered, you know, the the impact of streaming and the digital on what you do as an artist. You you seem to be finding it it's liberating. It really helped me a lot because it, people who want to listen to it can listen to it. It used to be, you know, I was living in New York. the The worst years for me were the '80s. And MTV would come in, and the, you know, that was bad. You know, a flock of seagulls, all that. So, aye, aye, aye. But I would walk into these the huge record store, and in the front of the record store would be a 10 foot high cutout of the boss. You yeah. know, there's the boss, you know. And then if I wanted to find my album, I'd be able to go way back <laughs> to uh, the subculture <laughs> section near the bedroom, you know, and, and weed through everything that re remotely resembled me. You know, and, uh, you, you could get your own card, barely. So, uh, but now with the, with the internet, it's more even, and uh, people who like you can check it out, and then the streaming uh, people actually hear it and can choose or not. It's been really good for me. And and then again, the focus back onto live performance oh. and on the the or you know what Walter Benjamin would call the oratic quality of the live performance. It's, what is oratic? Well, it has an aura around uh, it that you simply cannot get the from live, any reproduction. You can't get a. I, I if, if I don't like it live, I don't like it. Mm. I don't care what it is. I don't. I've never enjoyed. There are people who can put together, sort of knit together a wonderful little thing that sounds almost like some other record that was a hit for some reason and put it out and I just don't go for that shit. Mm. I mean, there's one guy who does, I really like, who does m many archaic sounding things among his records called The Divine Comedy, mm -hmm. Neil Hannon. Yeah, yeah. But he then when he goes out, the way I got into him was I saw a picture of him playing live with a treecorn hat on. <laughs> and, and I thought, who is this guy? He's a treecorn hat. He calls himself the Divide Comedy, you know? And then that was what hooked me. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to him, and uh, I listened to National Express. And that's a, it's like a bouncy piece of 60s British pop which I hated at the time, mm -hmm. but now that it's gone, it's nice to hear him do it and do it perfectly and well, and that's okay. You know, that's okay for me. But uh, but when the, when it when it just can't come over live, nah, eh, you know. I, I always used to say it sounded some of the groups when I was coming up. If I didn't like a group, they'd come onto the stage. It was almost them on and they were made out of cardboard 
and they just stood there in their velvet pants and, and figured you'd uh, buy their record and then they could leave and get rid of you. <laughs> but we were saying, uh, or I was laying on you back there, yeah. timing, you know, you start your, the core of your musicianship is in a sense timing. Mm. And yet there's that loss of time that is implied in those extraordinary, vital live performances, which you have every right to be proud of, keeping that, that vitality alive and that willingness to break regular time whenever yeah, you see sure, it. Yeah, I, uh, I did a concert for Arte uh, three nights ago in Paris. And it was supposed to be, okay, we're gonna play the free album, right? And this is, uh, and they put me in the, in the f lobby, in the foyer of a very beautiful old opera, hundreds of years old. And I went back, it was for a, an invited audience of 250 people. So I went backstage and uh, I asked, I had a suit on and everything. And, uh, I asked my French impresario, is this gonna be a bunch of de la so-and-sos, you know? Or he said, no, no, no. I said, well, what is it gonna be a bunch of, yo? And he said, no, 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 none of that. And, and you know, uh, the time came and I got two steps from the stage and it was all, eh, motherfucker, you know, and everything. So, so I did, you know, I stuck to my guns and I did the, free just the way it's supposed to be done With melancholic but, yeah but then spacey. after after about the third song i said look we're we're gonna continue with the album here but you can i promise you before i leave i'm gonna fuck you up the asshole <laughs> <laughs> and then and we got Thank the album done yeah <laughs> and we did a couple of very nice 70s my more arty period and then we fucked them up the asshole yeah. And they enjoyed that. Uh, they, it was a good they were, they were satiated <laughs> yeah. at yes, the end they of were that. Satiated. Even if they didn't think they enjoyed anal. There you go, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Raging against the dying of the light, the the Dylan yeah. Thomas poem and 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 the Lou Reed piece. Yeah. They're not in they stand in a very interesting relation on free, don't they? They seem to be counterpointing each other to some extent. Yeah. Did you see it that way? Yeah, I, I wanted to, it, as the thing developed, I, I wanted to, it, it, to me it was like a side B. There's five tracks first that kind of make sense in the normal song structure. Mm. And then starting with something called Glow in the Dark, and then this very somber one called Page, it's a breakup song. Then I just wanted all three poems to go out at the end. So the glow yeah. in the dark track made me think of Cocteau's cinema. Which actually. one? The, the glow, glow in, in the, the dark. dark. It made me think of Orfei and those yeah. sort of okay. those effects that Cocteau uses, moving through mirrors. And yeah, the all the, yeah, in Betty Bell yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it seemed to have that. But then you know, let's be at this end of history. We can speak our truth, can't we? You know, that's a poem I've read yeah. at, at three funerals. I think. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a funeral poem. It's come to be that certainly in this you country. Mean the, the Raging not, against the dying yeah, of the light. Yeah. Well, what I found in it, I did it first. It was just a gig. Uh, an ad man wanted me to do it, and uh, and then I thought, okay, he's chosen me because he thinks 
I might die reasonably soon. Right. Yeah, you know. Okay, great. That's my new qualification. You know? well, yeah, right. Shake your money, man. I get a lot of that with the autographs now. Get it before he dies. <laughs> I know that. Okay. So, <laughs> so you know, I did it. And, and then what I thought, I don't know about you, you might, you know maybe more about this, but I started realizing for me it wasn't as much the punchline as it was in each stanza, there's a type, a type, a character, mm. an archetype, the grave men, mm. the wild men, the good men, etc., uh, etc., et uh, the wise men, and then they discover where they where they fucked up mm. just before they go ah, oh. you know, like uh, the the good man is, as the last wave is by, and they're crying how bright their frail deeds might dance in a green bay. I took that to mean somebody feels like I had the right idea, but the the situ the, the uh, society was against me. <laughs> the situation wasn't right. That sort of thing, mm. you know, or the in the case of the wild man, you know, where he catches and sings the sun in flight, but then he learns too late he grieved it on its way. You see, you can't have happiness if you're busy upsetting everybody. <laughs> you know? Right, but they yeah. all rage against the dying. Well, of the but life. we do, yeah. And then there's that, you know. But you're not raging. Well, are you? You well, don't seem very ragey. I'm kind of. Mm sneaking up on it okay. is what I'm doing and I'm trying to I'm trying to allow myself a, a little more license than I ever have actually uh, as I get nearer that spot like it, 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 uh, there's, there's, there's two ways I guess uh, the two obvious ways to think about getting into that whole uh, situation of death is one okay now what am I going to do? Let's see. Let's make sure I've got the most expensive medical care possible, and uh, I'll gather the, a really large family around me who all are completely financially independent uh, or dependent, right? So they'll have to be there when I croak, right? You know, and I'll, I'll need lawyers, uh, etc. And then the other way is. That's like dear old poor old Warren yeah, Zevon, like money, I'm, guns, and lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> the the way that I'm a tend more toward is what are those going to be things I'm going to be thinking about in terms of my life that I didn't do or didn't dare do that are just the things that make you feel good as I'm starting to go. So I tend more toward that stuff, but I try to cover, you know, I'm not broke yet, which is a good idea when you're mm. 72, you know. Elsewhere in, in, in the lyrics, and I don't know how much you endorse that, there's, there's a, a rather sort of sad remark on, on intimacy. There's kind of, you know, love and sex, you know, they're, they're, not, yeah. good, they're not it. They're That's not the dawn, the one yeah, I yeah. wrote. Yeah, no, they're That's not. That's you. Well, yeah. they're not it. They're not yeah. it. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, those are nice things, mm. both of them, and, and you can find them everywhere. I think I was reading. I was reading uh, part of uh, how the dead live, and you posited through one of your characters maybe uh, it, that it's the possibility that having children is that's the whole meaning of life. Well, I don't know if 
that's enough either. You know, I don't know. It was enough once. I mean, we, oh. we do seem at a, at a strange end of history with the climate emergency, with the, with the, the splitting apart yeah, of the old world order. Yeah. You and I grew up under, under the nuclear shadow. Yeah, but, but that's still there too. Everybody forgetting that yeah. now, you know, they that's forget. still there, you know. And, and I always thought, that, you know, our, our post-war generation was shaped by the most savage double bind of all time. Our government simultaneously claimed to be loving us, yet possessed the means of our own destruction. You uh, know, and, and I think we're all a little bit crazy, yeah. aren't we, at this end of time? But after post-World War II, it's kind of like, because of that, you, you get to live on credit, because the people between 1900 and 1950, they had to go fight in these filthy holes all over the place and die like flies in the hundreds of thousands in the millions and be slaughtered or like Egon Sheila died of the Spanish flu because of the war, because yeah. of the war that was on, you know? So we don't have to do any of that stuff. All we have to do is just worry about what's coming. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much it, you know? And, and do you? Do you wake up in the small hours? Do you do you have that worry? Mm, I, I don't worry about other things, but not that. I think because I, I'm frank with it, with the the people I, I love and know well, sometimes I'll say, look, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm glad I'm the age I am. Mm. And that's terrible, but, uh, you know, I'm starting to feel that's all maybe enviable, mm. <laughs> you know, because... I've only got, what, 10, 15 years to go. Probably that's the highest probability. I would call it two cycles. Uh, I, I look at life as a seven-year cycle. That's how long the takes for the cells to regenerate. Right, so it's Theseus's ship. You're a new person every seven this years. This is it, yeah. And, and I kind of wondered about that. I just wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I said back there, I said, it's Jim, right? We're, yeah. we're going to be Jim on stage. And it ena will enable us to detach ourselves from Iggy, yeah. who's kind of out there. Sure. Right. So you aren't really that person anymore in a way, are you? Are you still the person who slumped watching Starsky and Hutch in yeah. the Berlin squat <laughs> with Brixton's most famous son well, in, in a drugged-out that, that crowd always called me Jim anyway, so, <laughs> but, you know, but... um. He had this one song he tried to sell me that I wouldn't sing. And all the time, we we did three records together, and it was it went, oh, Iggy Pop, when are you gonna stop? <laughs> and I said, I ain't singing that. You know, let's not go That's there, dude. So bad juju. Let's just leave it, yeah. And was he but, riding you with that? Was that his game? No, no, it was just, I don't know. Yeah, I think that day he was trying to have a little go and see what I would do, you know. I didn't think he expected me to actually do it. He was just having a little go. But, you know, I mean, I started... I started as a, my, my, I've made certain great decisions in life. The first decision was, I was 18, I said, I'm not going back to college. I'm gonna be a musician all my life. I was not trying to be a singer or have albums. I'm just gonna be a musician. I was a drummer, I was not bad. I was fairly fucking good. So I went and found these older musicians who were, pretty metacritical, but also could play. 
and I was in a blues band around a campus, and I was Jim there, but a guy where I worked in a record store, and also the older guys in the blues band would call me Iguana to mock my high school cover band, the Iguanas. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was, once I, uh, to be frank, I outgrew these people quickly. It took me about a year and a half, and uh, I thought, they're not going anywhere. I'm going to start my own thing. And that was a big decision, huge transition. All my friends felt sorry for me. Jeez, Jim Osterberg is one of the best drummers in the area. Everybody wants him. He thinks he's on drugs now, and he thinks he's going to be some sort of singer or something. And uh, I plotted and plotted and thought and thought and recruited these townies, rustics, basically, to, to back me up. And uh, we went out and played one gig. I was still thinking, I wonder what my stage name will be. Maybe Jimmy James. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, and uh, there was a kid who wrote for the college paper, the Michigan Daily. We opened for some horrible uh, band. I think it was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, one of those big bands at the local what goes ballroom. up must come yeah. down so <laughs> he he wrote he wrote up the gig and they got this much and we got a huge column and he called me iggy so i'd already been an obscure musician starving living on peanut butter and jelly long enough to know you get a break just shut up eat take your medicine eat the shit go with it <laughs> that's all so you know that's but it was a moment of sort of almost, uh, not to be weird or anything, kind of divine self-creation. There that you go, in a way. Right. I didn't it fight it. It, it I reminds me of Ross Russell's description in his book Bird Lives of Parker, Charlie Parker, going away after the cymbals chucked at his feet and then coming back. Ah. And everybody says, how the fuck did he do that? He can play like that now. Oh, he, can right. play the, he can play the alto sax. Or Dylan, for that matter. You know, when he turns up... He leaves the Midwest. He turns up in New York. He's yeah. recreated himself. Yeah, right. In he's that not way. in. He's not in Bobby V's backup exactly. band anymore. Exactly. He's, he's a phenomenon. He's yes. Yeah. And have you always regarded that phenomenon slightly askance? Have you been detached from it, or have there been times when the myth has eaten you up? It was very askance for my whole life. Uh, it was worse when I started. I had a big problem with it personally. Um, so I would say to everybody, call me Jim, if you knew me. But I'd still be Iggy when I worked. And then finally I was 22. And it was the first time I had sex with a girl. And she started screaming, Iggy, Iggy, Iggy. And I, oh, that Just sounds... coincidentally. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded weird. But I thought, well, that's not bad. You know? So I started to grow into the to grow into the thing little by little. And uh, I finally became really comfortable with it when it, I got to be about a, ooh, a 55, 60 in there where I thought, wow, look what I've done. I like this track, I like that album, I like this thing, I, I've resurrected the band and got them some money and okay, yeah, I'm, I'm real, I, I like this, you know? Uh, yeah, you can be comfortable. Yeah, with it. you know, and then sort of I didn't like it if, uh, if the wrong person called me Jim in the wrong way. I'd say, call me Iggy. 
You know, like if they're going to have a little, like, I'm not going for that Iggy shit. So you could use the persona as something that sometimes you hit behind you or can sometimes use you it. disown. Yes, you? absolutely. Of course mm. you can. But I've got to say, and, and I don't want to be weird about this or yeah. anything, Jim, but, you know, I've, I've, I've met a lot of quite famous people over, mm. the, over the years, and you're one of the few who seems to me to be unaffected in a negative spiritual way by that degree of fame. Wow, that's good. I'm fortunate then. No, really. I mean, no. you, you don't. You know, there are certain people, and their their persona enters the room about several minutes in advance. Yeah, of yeah, them. yeah. I don't. And, and <laughs> when you came in, I, I met you once before. We had dinner in the '80s uh, with Kevin Armstrong, who's oh, one of your band Kevin, leaders, yeah. when he was playing with you on the Blah 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 oh, project yeah, wow. back then. And and you were really hench. You were really. And and you you were, were newly clean, I think. And, yes, or, and, I was. And, and you were a pretty rigid guy. Oh yeah. You were a pretty rigid guy. But again, you had no fucking side at all. You were what you 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 were what you were. Yeah, I was doing what I was doing to survive at that point. You, you know, know. And, and you've said that your parents were were loving. Oh yeah, I had uh, everybody I met once I left school. Everyone I met assumed, is, is that some kind of rich kid or something? Mm. As they'd given me so much attention and confidence. And, um, and just, they didn't have money or anything. They just lived in a little trailer. But uh, they were, the father was pretty well, quite well educated through the GI Bill. Mm. And he was bright. And my mother was bright. They growth grew up poor. Their parents were, he never met either parent. Shit, can you imagine that? Never laid eyes on either parent, ever. Woo! Uh, they were from here and Ireland, and uh, and uh, both he and my mother were, their families they put together were ruined in the Depression. And they were living in a cabin with cold water in Upper Michigan, so they were scared. Mm. And so as they got older, they became very, conservative, mm. very orderly people on a very small budget. Mm. But they would do everything for me, pick me up from school activities, uh, try to shelter me from Elvis Presley. <laughs> when I brought a Muddy Waters record home and tried to learn, my mother rented a, you know, they, they let me set up the drum kit in the house when I was in high school. But after I left, I was in college, she rented a spinet piano for me, which took up half of the living room. And I'm sitting there with this Muddy Waters record on our faux colonial record player, you know, because nice people at that time tried to make uh, electric appliances look nice, you know. And I'm trying to figure out uh, uh, this Muddy Waters song. I can't remember. She's long and she's tall. She's like a willow tree. They say she's no good. She's all right with me. Whatever song it was, I was trying to pick it out on the piano. My father finally got really agitated. And he said, look, Jim, I can understand why a man is crying. But you don't have to cry. <laughs> but the thing is, everybody does have to. Mm. And my dad was not... Everybody has to. There was a woman who I liked very much, who I 
spent some time with recently because she was going to write about me, but she's a good author. And she made, she had the idea and she was right that when I was in the blues band and I went to Chicago, watched those people play, she said that she thought it had taught me to somehow uh, bring expression out of despair. Mm. And I thought that's pretty fair, mm. you know. So, um, you know, anyway, uh, yeah, my dad was wrong about that, but he, he couldn't, he just wasn't in a situation to dare to do. I mean, guys, that generation, my father was uh, born in 1921. So, you're a kid, it's the depression. You're living on oatmeal and tomatoes. And then one of his big impressions that he would tell me over and over is, now remember, your great uncle Henry died of syphilis. <laughs> you know, So you've got the depression. You've got rampant disease. Then he gets old enough to, to uh, want to do something with his life. He wanted to be a sports player. He goes to baseball camp. The war breaks out. So you're gonna go to the off to war and uh, fight Japanese people in the, you know, for no <laughs> Borneo good for no good <laughs> reason, right? And then you come back, and there's a brat, <laughs> you know. So whoa, that's you know that's a lot of burden on a person, you know. And uh, but what I feel comes through when you're talking about mm, him is you know. a huge amount of compassion, is a deep sense, and and actually. Jim, that's what comes through on free as well, is a great a sort of mm. compassion beaming out of this music, this, this deeply atmospheric music. It's a beautiful piece of work. I think you Thanks. should be deeply proud of it. We've, uh, I, I feel we've only just started talking, but in fact, we've been talking for over an hour. Okay, cool. I, and I think your public are probably keen to meet you. It's been a great pleasure. Your, and, your and public? Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. hope we, we do it again sometime. All right, cool. All right, you take care. Will, thanks right, a thank lot. Thank you. Mr. Osterberg. Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.